Do you think we're alone in the universe? Could there be other life out there? And if there is, or even if there isn't, how does life come to be anyway? I'm Tegan Taylor and this is Occam's Razor, still a soapbox for science, even if today I do sound like your mate on a camping trip getting a little too deep while looking up at all those stars. And this week we're hearing from someone who's trying to unpick the origins of life here on Earth, but maybe other places too. Here's Luke Stella. Um, So my name is Luke and I study aliens. No, this isn't my confession at a conspiracy theorist anonymous group. And in a roundabout way, I really do study aliens. But that involves me spending a lot of time in muddy little hot spring pools. Let me explain. So my PhD is in astrobiology, which is all about trying to figure out if there could be life on other planets. Now, there's this amazing group of researchers and scientists working on this space, trying to answer that one simple question, are we alone in the universe? So when I went to my first astrobiology conference, I was blown away by just the different numbers of people that were trying to have a crack at this question. There were geologists trying to calculate how rocks could collide in just the right way for a planet to form. There were physicists trying to figure out how they could detect an alien TV signal coming from another planet onto our um, solar system. There were philosophers sitting in the corner trying to argue about what life's intelligence would actually look like on another planet. And there were chemists literally trying to create life in test tubes. Now, this sounds like a really weird mixture of people coming together, but we were brought together by a beautiful equation, and that's called the Drake Equation. So the Drake Equation was created in the 60s by a physicist, Frank Drake, and it was a really back-of-the-envelope understanding to try and figure out if how many civilizations in our galaxy we could talk to. So it was over lunch in a university cafeteria. There were physicists there and astronomers and a few extra special guests. Um, a few of my favourite guests was an expert in dolphin communication. And they were really trying to understand what non-human intelligence could look like. Now, this was the 60s, so this researcher, all they really did was just feed these dolphins insane amounts of LSD to see if they could make them more talkative. But, um, you know, you've got to start somewhere. There was also a young Carl Sagan that was present, who was actually my age at the time of this big meeting, which I think is a really cool thing to take note of. So they all got together and they started talking and they figured out a string of numbers that if you multiplied them together would tell you how many aliens we have out there. Basically, they said if we got the number of stars in our galaxy and multiplied that by the probability of that star having a planet orbiting around it, and then from that, the number of those planets where life may form, the number of those planets where that life may become intelligent, the number of those planets where that life can then evolve technology that we could then detect and communicate with, and so on, until you get your alien version of Occam's Razor. A lot of those numbers are quite easy to figure out, and with the amazing new James Webb telescope that was recently launched, they can literally see planets orbiting around other stars. It's getting a lot easier to figure out how many planets are out there. But there's one number in that equation that was really difficult to understand. And that's how hard is it for life to form? So basically, scientists love having large sample sizes when they try and answer a question. But the problem with life is that we've only got a sample size of one, and that's us right here on Earth. So that's where my research comes in. I'm trying to figure out what that number could be by understanding the environment in which life might have formed. 
So we know life would have been a mixture of small inorganic carbon molecules coming together for a bit of nitrogen and phosphorus, maybe some rocks, maybe some water, a bit of lightning to sort of shake it up. But what environment do you need to actually bring all these things together in just the right way? So this is a really heated debate that's happening in my community of astrobiology at the moment, with two distinct camps that are just going at it trying to figure this out. The first camp are a group of researchers who think that life could have formed in a deep sea hydrothermal vent, which would have been a you know underwater volcano kilometers under the ocean surface. So they love these vents because if you look at a modern vent, there's all of these amazing little microbes and tube worms and crabs living around them, literally living off the chemicals produced from these vents. They are eating all these yummy little sulfur molecules that are coming out and turning them into energy, and that's how these entire ecosystems exist. I think these ecosystems are really cool because if the sun went out tomorrow, we would all end up dying because our food sources rely on photosynthesis to live. But down there, these little tube worms would just keep kicking along and have no idea what's going on on the surface. But could life actually form here? When you think about life, there's a really important molecule, a type of molecules that's needed for life to form. And the work I'm doing in the lab is showing that these molecules cannot exist in these deep sea vents. So these molecules are called polymers. And polymers are just basically long strands of noodles of lots of different molecules linked up together that can form these nice long chains. So when you think about the chemicals of life, you think about DNA, RNA, proteins, carbohydrates, they're all examples of these polymers, of these long noodly links. So modern life has really amazing chemical machines inside each individual cell, things like enzymes that can link these um, little chains together to make these long noodles in the cell. But when there weren't any cells around in the very first cell that was forming on that ancient, ancient earth, how could you make these long noodles without that cell? So without boring you with too much chemistry, the way that we think that could happen is through the process of evaporation. So when you link two DNA molecules together to form a long chain of DNA, every time you add a new little DNA unit on, a water molecule gets removed. So we find that if we put individual building blocks of DNA together and you dry that down, you remove the water from it, over time it can promote the reaction that links them all up together to form these long chains. So this is exciting news for the noodle factory of life to try and get going, you know, all those years ago. But it makes it very difficult to imagine life forming in these deep sea vents, kilometers of water above them that are constantly wet. It's impossible to get evaporation in these spaces. So what we do in our research lab, we think about other environments where life could potentially form. Environments where there would be all those yummy chemicals that you get out of volcanoes, but you also have evaporation. And these environments would have to have been present billions of years ago on the Earth's surface. The one environment that we're looking into are my muddy little hot spring pools. So these hot spring pools are a really great way of trying to get chemistry to you know, get going in these spaces. And that's what I actively do. So I spent a lot of time up in the north of the Himalayas in a place called Ladakh, which has some amazing hot springs up there. And I go to Rotorua in New Zealand. And basically, I'm taking those little individual DNA and RNA building blocks, and I'm putting them into these hot spring pools. And I'm letting them dry down, and I re-wet them by splashing some more water on them and trying to get them to form these long noodly chains. And funny enough, when I take them into the lab and I look at them under a microscope or I put a little bit of dye in there that will only glow if there's long chains of molecules present, I'm finding that there's noodles galore 
There's RNA everywhere getting popped out of these places. And what's more interesting is that we're finding the different chemistry of these pools, the different pHs, the temperatures, how many different elements are dissolved in them, are drastically changing the types of noodles that we're creating, which could really drive the complexity we needed for life to form on an early Earth. So these findings are actually really important when we think about looking for life in our solar system. That's right, everyone, we're back to the aliens. So basically, when you're trying to find life on another planet, there are two main environments we look for in our solar system. The first one are places like Mars, which even though they're cold and dry and rocky right now, a few billion years ago, they would have been wet, they would have been warm, there would have been hot springs, there would have been volcanoes, there would have been rivers going around, it would have looked a lot like the Earth looks like a few billion years ago as well. As we all know, NASA loves sending little rovers across to Mars to dig through these rocks to figure out if there's any of this ancient life in these hot springs or these rivers still present. The other place that NASA and the European Space Agency are looking for are places that are called icy worlds. And these are moons that are orbiting around Jupiter and Saturn, places like Enceladus and Europa. So in these icy worlds, there are literally kilometers of thick of frozen ice encrusting these moons. But underneath that, observations lead us to believe that there might be some liquid water just floating there beneath the surface. NASA loves the motto, follow the water, when trying to find life. So they get very excited by these little trapped oceans underneath these big glacial sheets. But if we're trying to show that evaporation is needed to form the noodles of life, well then, is looking for life in these places in vain? Now, this could be a bit of a trivial question, but when it costs NASA a few billion dollars per spacecraft, and they literally have to design this craft to tunnel through kilometers of ice to get to this water, it's um, a big question to think about. So the research that I'm doing at the moment opens up a whole can of alien worms. On one hand, there's all these arguments around the research that we look at. Is it being too arrogant? Are we assuming that life has to look like us and have the same chemical origin elsewhere in the solar system? Is that just us kind of trying to create life in a reflection of ourselves? But on the other hand, it seems pretty clear from my understanding of biophysics that you need some kind of long chains. Even if it's not DNA or RNA, you need some long molecules, these long noodles, to hold information and to give primitive alien life structure. So even if it wasn't the same way that we look at it, noodles, these little molecules, are an important part of life. So these are the kind of questions that keep myself and all these other astrobiologists up at night, and are probably the reason why I really should go to an Alien Hunters Anonymous group. Thank you. <laughs> Are you team noodles or team water? Or just team Carl Sagan's mate with the dolphins? That was Luke Stella, a PhD candidate at the Australian Centre for Astrobiology at UNSW. He was speaking at our Occam's Razor live event at Sydney Powerhouse on Gadigal Land in September. I'm Tegan Taylor, your Occam's Razor host, and just like a microbe in a thermal vent at the bottom of the ocean, you can't get rid of me that easily. I'll have another scientist for you to marvel at right here next week.